The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 7, and if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been going through a sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, and so we've been studying into the teaching of Jesus, and in God's wisdom, He doesn't just give us Jesus' teaching, He also gives us narrative of Jesus' actions and his doings so that you can get a glimpse of Christ and what he's like and what he does and his character and how he treats others and his power, as we'll see today. Today we're going to get a glimpse of his power. So let's just start right in the beginning, this, this first verse. It says, after he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. So Luke is saying this is something that happened chronologically after his sermon. He had spoken to the people, and now he's going to do something. He entered Capernaum. So he's going to enter into this city, and if just get our bearings here, Capernaum would have been on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was, a, in a signif- it was quite a significant town. Jesus had many, or I should say at least three disciples from Capernaum. It was even called in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus' own city, so he likely had a Home there, as Mark indicates in Mark chapter 2. He had performed a lot of miracles there as well. And unfortunately, we're also told in Matthew chapter 11 that despite all of Jesus' miracles in Capernaum, the place that he is just now about to enter, despite all the miracles and the work that he did there to display his glory, the response was not favorable. In fact, that response will even tie into the irony of Jesus' engagement and interaction with this Centurion, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. In Matthew eleven twenty three, we find out how Capernaum responded to Jesus' miracles. Jesus actually rebukes them quite strongly, gives them a warning. It says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you not be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, even though Sodom was a terribly wicked place, if Jesus would have done his miracles there, they would have repented. And Jesus is saying, you are receiving the greatest of all miracles. The Messiah is in your midst performing miracles, and you are not responding with faith. And so they will receive a greater judgment. And we'll see again, as I said, that this denunciation of Capernaum will play into the irony of this story today. So Luke, once he establishes the setting, he is now going to provide the main characters of the story. And when I say story, I don't mean that we're viewing or trying to understand some sort of mythological or legendary story. I mean a true story. This is, we, we see, we've already seen that Luke is laboring to write accurately. He's writing true history. So if that word story trips you up, which it may, because that you, that word has been taken by some scholars to suggest that these narratives or these elements of the book of Luke are mere myth or legend, that's not what I mean at all. By story, I mean true story. And you can have true stories, and that's in fact what we have here. So if I do use that word and I'm going to, then you know what I mean by it. This is something that truly happened in the life of Jesus, but Luke is writing in a particular way, and he's trying to get us to see specific things and specific elements in the life of Christ, and so he's choosing this story intentionally. And so he now is going to introduce the main characters. The first up is the centurion. It says, now a centurion had a servant. So you've got the centurion, it's one of the main characters, and the servant, which will play an important role, but he's not the main character as the centurion is. Now a centurion, in case you're not familiar with what a centurion would have been, this would have been a soldier, but more than a soldier. He would, have been a, uh, he would have been a Roman soldier, but he would have been more than that. He would have been a leader of men. He would have been a leader of soldiers. He would have been a leader over 100 soldiers. That's how they broke up their divisions. And he would have been a ruler like an officer in our military today over this platoon or this group of soldiers. And that's what he would have been in charge of, these 100 soldiers. And these officers, these centurions, would have been career military men. And interestingly, the New Testament often casts them in a positive light. If you just read through the New Testament, through the Gospels and Acts, you'll find that often centurions 
are viewed positively or they're presented positively. Just to give you an example, the centurion that was stationed at Jesus' cross testified to Jesus' innocence. That happens in Luke 23, 47, indicating that he may have believed in the Lord. Luke reports that Cornelius, a Roman centurion in Acts 10, feared God, and he was the first Gentile to whom Peter preached the gospel, and he receives the gospel. That's quite positive. A centurion advocated for Paul in Acts 22, 26, and even, a centurion even protected Paul in Acts 27, 43. In these references, these positive references to centurions, these Roman soldiers, is an implicit indication that the gospel's moving out beyond Israel. It's moving out beyond the Jews to all people. Well, this centurion had a servant, or as your text might say, a slave, and this would have been normal during this time. We know that in the history of the world, slavery and servitude has been common in many parts of the world, and so this is no different. And often as you find where slavery is common, you'll find slaves very mistreated. They're treated like tools, like implements at the service of the master, and that master might be quite cruel because you are his property. Well, here we have a different situation, perhaps uh, unexpected situation, where this centurion says that he was sick and at the point of death, and he was highly valued by the centurion. And that should be seen as remarkable. This word for valued or highly valued is used throughout the New Testament to mean precious, <laughs> distinguished. It refers to honor. And so the value here is not merely in terms of economics, as though he is able to provide him something at low cost. He's a great servant. He doesn't cost me much. He multiplies my wealth. He does what I say. He's trustworthy, hardworking, and loyal. The word here doesn't seem to indicate that it's merely that kind of value, but it's a holistic value. He's useful to the, his master. He's useful to the centurion, as a good servant would be, of course, but he's more than that. He's highly valued. He's probably even loved by this centurion. There's a relationship here. So though, even though that master-servant social relationship would have been intact, there's nevertheless a love and affection for this servant. He is both useful and he is loved by his centurion master. He had, the, the centurion had an affection for this servant beyond the personal benefit that the servant could offer. So when the centurion hears about Jesus, he dispatched not his soldiers, but as the text says here, elders of the Jews. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews. Now, who are these elders of the Jews? Well, the evidence is that they're likely civil leaders, not synagogue leaders. It's hard to tell. Evidence seems to point in the direction that these are civil leaders. That would have been the case in Israel. You would have had elders of the Jews handling both religious and civil responsibilities. Either way, it's not incredibly important. Either way, it, the fact is that he is sending these elders of the Jews to Jesus. But an interesting phrase here, it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus. And I, see, I read that and I think, I want to know, what had he heard about Jesus? Up to this point, what had this centurion, centurion if we're just kind of recreate, recreate the setting in the scenario where the centurion, this Roman centurion is in Capernaum. Remember, Rome is occupying Israel at the time. That's why they're there. And he's stationed there because Capernaum was a, a significant city economically. He even had a tax center. We know that because of Matthew being there, being a tax collector. So it's a significant city. The Romans are stationed there. And so he's there. And what's, what's the milieu? What's going on? What is he hearing about Jesus? Well, you can reconstruct it from other parts of the Gospel of Luke and even other parts of the other Gospels. Jesus had done a concentrated amount of miracles in Capernaum, just a number of miracles, which is what made that denunciation so poignant, right? Jesus is just working his glory everywhere, and they're not recognizing it by and large. He had, for example, healed a demoniac in uh, Capernaum. He'd already done that. That's Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. That's Luke chapter 38 through 41. And you think, well, maybe the centurion heard that. He's like, boy, if Jesus is healing mother-in-laws, he's healing everybody. Uh, so I, I have a chance. 
He had healed a paralytic in Capernaum. That was Luke chapter 5 in uh, verses 17 through 26. So he had already done significant miracles that this centurion would have likely heard about. But there's another one in the Gospel of John that I think is even more significant. If you would like to turn there with me, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54 likely would have heard of this event. This one here that we're turning to in John, again, just to help you reconstruct things, this one we're turning to here would have actually been before the healing of the demoniac chronologically in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. And the reason I want to highlight this particular miracle is because this one not only took place in Capernaum or the effect of it took place in Capernaum, but it happened to the son of a royal, or to the son of a royal official who would have been, like our uh, centurion, likely a Roman. In fact, this Roman official could have been a centurion himself. So in this story, Jesus is in Cana. He's in the Galilee region. He's in Cana, which is as the flow, uh, crow flies, about 15 to 20 miles west, about west of Capernaum. So that's where Jesus is presently at. He's in Cana, and that's significant. When the official whose son was sick heard about Jesus, that he was in this Galilee region, he traveled to meet Jesus in Cana to ask him if he would heal his son who was at the point of death, similar to the slave that we've met, the servant that we've met. Verse 48, Jesus says this, So Jesus said to him when he asked this request, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them about the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The, mother, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he was, had come from Judea to Galilee. So, the centurion may have heard about the other miracles in Capernaum. He may have heard about this one specifically. And so, this gave him confidence about who Jesus will help out. He's not just helping out Jews. He's also seeming to help out Romans, Gentiles. And as we'll see, this centurion would have had some insight into the Jewish religion. I don't think he was a proselyte. I don't think he was a convert to Judaism. But he helps them build their synagogue, which means he's going to have some knowledge of Judaism. And he would have probably expected Jesus to be helping out Jews. Who he, Jesus was himself a Jew, so he's helping out Jews. And so this story likely is going to give him confidence that he will help him out. And I think there's evidence in this text in Luke chapter 7 that in fact he did hear this story, as we'll see in a, in a little bit. So let's ask this question though. Why did he send, why did the centurion send elders of the Jews to Jesus? Well, we're not told, we're not given his motives. I think it's reasonable to suggest that he did it because he thought this would be a way of getting Jesus, a Jew, to help out a Gentile. I'm going to send to him Jews, his kinsmen. I mean, it makes sense. We're not told explicitly, but that would make sense. And the fact that he sends these elders of the Jews to Jesus, anticipating that it would be a positive response, and the fact that then the elders themselves appeal to the centurion's worthiness to get Jesus to help him indicates that there is a good relationship here. Between this centurion and the Jews in that place, in Capernaum, there was a good relationship. Now, granted, Rome was occupying, and the, and the centurion was an occupier, right? But there nevertheless was a good relationship. We find out here, he says, just looking down here in verse 5, he loves our nation. This is what the elders are saying. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. You might be thinking, so you mean he assigned it to be done? Well, yes, he's not building it with his own hands. There's other people doing it. But a lot of it probably came out of his own means. There's evidence that demonstrates that these centurions made a lot of money, actually. In some cases, upwards of 100 times more than just the regular soldiers. In some cases, 1,000 times more per year than these 
just regular soldiers. So they were quite wealthy. And so it is likely that he funded this project in a significant way. Again, we're not told, but this is just putting together the, the historical incidentals here and trying to understand what happened. So what the elders do is they focus, when they go to Jesus now, they know the situation of the centurion. They know that he has this beloved servant who's on the point of death. The text says he's literally at the end. And they know that he has been kind to their nation, that they've, he's, they've enjoyed this synagogue because of his generosity. And so now what they're going to do is they're going to appeal to Jesus based on his worthiness. That's what he says, verse 4. And when, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. So let's keep that in our mind. They are going to Jesus in order to capture Jesus' compassion, or at the very least, recognize that, hey, there should be some reciprocal gift here. He's gifted our nation. Jesus, remember, you're a Jew, you have access to this synagogue that he built. Don't you think? Little quid pro quo, little reciprocation here. Okay? So they're going and they're basing it on his worthiness. Well, without a word, Jesus, it says in verse 6, went with them. He went with them. And this is important because what it's showing again is that Jesus is going to non-Jews He's going to people of different ethnicities, and guess what else? He's going to people of high social ranking. He's not only going to people of high social ranking, but nor is he just going to the poor either. We may make that mistake in the New Testament, thinking that Jesus is only concerned about saving those who are poor and downtrodden. No, he goes to every social strata and calls out to all people to be saved. And he's going to go now to the centurion who would have had remarkable social and political reputation, and he's going to show compassion on him. And as we'll see, the centurion is going to exercise faith. But again, we're just getting ahead of ourselves. I need to slow it down here. But something significant, even unexpected, happens on Jesus' way to see the centurion. This is, this is unexpected given what we know about centurions up to this point, given what we have seen, what the elders have said about the centurion and how they've tried to appeal to Jesus on his behalf. This time, the centurion is going to dispatch another group of people, again, not soldiers, which he would have been completely familiar with doing. He dispatches, it says here, friends. When he, that's Jesus, was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. But this message is remarkably almost the opposite of what the elders had said. Notice what he says. Says friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, wait a second. Now, remember, Luke is intentionally, every word that he's using is intentional. He wants us to, to grasp something here. And it's the clear contrast between what the centurion himself thinks about his, himself in relation to Jesus and what the elders are thinking about the centurion in relation to Jesus. They were appealing to his worthiness, and the centurion is appealing to his, what? His unworthiness. He says, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to even have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come out to you. So not only don't come under my roof, I'm not worthy to have you there, but I'm not even worthy to stand in your presence or to, or to waste any more of your time. All you have to do is say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, we're going to find out that Jesus is, he marvels at this, this faith. And we need to unpack exactly what he's saying here or what he's implying here by the words that he's using because this is remarkable. But what is he implying here when he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed? Well, continue in verse 8. For I too, he's going to explain what this, this means here. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, 
and he does it. So the centurion knows something about authority, doesn't he? He's a ruler of men. He's a leader of men. And it's a well-functioning military. It's organized. It's disciplined. And they've learned the order of command. And remember the other day, my uh, kids were asking me about the military, and I can't remember exactly how it came up, but they're asking me about the military and why it is that the sergeants have to yell so much in the, in the military. And, and I'm not entirely sure, but I did say, because I'm not in the military myself, but I did say what, what needs to happen, especially during basic training, is the soldiers need to learn order of command so that they will act upon that command and not question it. Because questioning it or rebelling against it could mean disaster for you, the rest of the army, and the rest of the nation. So they have to learn order of command. And the centurion recognizes this, right? He knows that in his command, he, he can tell a soldier to do that, and he does it, and he tells a soldier to do that, and he does it. He has servants who do what he, they tell him to do. His authority is effective, so when he says to Jesus, this is what's amazing. When he says this to Jesus, but say the word and let my servant be healed, what he's saying is that he is confessing that he believes that Jesus has authority over every aspect of creation. Jesus doesn't even need to be in the same vicinity as the servant. He doesn't need to be in the same room. He doesn't need to touch the servant. He doesn't need to be in the same house. All Jesus has to do is speak into the air. And that authority will heal the servant. That is exactly what he is confessing here. This is what he believes about Jesus. Jesus only has to say a word into the air, and the universe obeys him. You see what he's believing? The, the centurion is confessing to Jesus... You have authority over every component of this creation so that all you have to do is speak and my servant who's way down the road is healed. The whole of creation, including the servant, including his body, including the virus that was attacking his internal organs was under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what that centurion was believing. Wow. And in fact... The centurion, remember, backing up, Jesus uh, went with the elders of the Jews. When he was not, that's Jesus, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, the centurion's not even in the presence of Jesus. It's his friends. So the centurion is, is, is anticipating the power of Jesus transcending space to the point where the centurion doesn't even need to be in the presence of Jesus. My request can go with friends. I can stay here at the house with the servant. This is remarkable faith. And that's what Jesus is going to key in on here in a moment. In other words, you don't need to be in the physical, the physical presence of Jesus in order for him to exercise effective power in your life. And boy, isn't that a lesson for us today. None of us have seen the physical Jesus None of us have. And yet we know and believe that he has effective power in our life, just like the centurion believed when he sent his friends to get Jesus to act on his behalf. Now let's skip down to verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now the reason I have a skip down, we are going to go back to verse 9, don't worry. But the reason why I have a skip down is because would somebody in here show me in the text where Jesus actually uses a word to heal the servant? The servant or the, the centurion said, just speak a word, and that's amazing enough. Just your words spoken into the universe, the molecules and whatever needs to happen are going to do what they're supposed to do in order to heal the servant. And I don't see anywhere in the text where Jesus uses words. He says, verse 9, he marveled at, it says, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So that's no words used specifically to heal. And you might be thinking, well, okay, Luke just leaves it out. It's, it's not an important part of the story. So he leaves it out. And Derek, you're arguing from silence. Okay, fair enough. But listen to this. 
Perhaps Jesus did speak a word, and Luke doesn't record those words. But I'm inclined to conclude that Jesus didn't say anything because didn't say anything because immediately after this story, we find a story of Jesus using words to raise a dead man. That's in the following paragraph. Young man, I say to you, arise. A little later, he used words to heal a demoniac in chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, and then to raise a young girl from the dead. That's chapter 8, verses 49 through 56. In each case, Jesus used words to do it. Luke records those words. And then in chapter 7, later in chapter 7, he's going to heal a woman with a discharge of blood, but he doesn't use words to heal her. He just, she just grabs a hold of his garment and power goes out from him. So Luke is well aware of when Jesus uses words and when he doesn't use words in order to create a miracle. And his silence about Jesus' words here leads me to conclude that he didn't use words to heal the centurion's servant. Why is that important? Well, even though the centurion's faith is remarkable, even though it's amazing, Jesus' power actually surpasses the centurion's faith. Centurion said, listen, I know, I believe you have authority over the creation. Just speak a word. You're like, yeah, that's amazing. Just this man who could speak a word and the, the universe obeys him, even down to the smallest of molecules. That is awesome. And Jesus says, you want to see power? I won't even speak a word. Done. Right? That's the power of Jesus, the God-man. Well, back to verse 9. Because Jesus is going to marvel at this centurion's faith. Let's read it again. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned to the crowd right, and said, I, I haven't seen faith like this, not even in Israel. Now, this word marvel, it's a strong word. It's translated throughout the New Testament as wondered, as amazed, as surprised, as astonished. Jesus is astonished that a Gentile, someone who's not part of God's covenant people, a person who hadn't grown up under the wonderful privilege of having God's word, the privilege of having the Jewish religious life with access to the one true God and his revelation, he didn't have access to seeing God's uh, glory and power in Israel, but he did see glory and power in Jesus that most of Israel did not see. And that's what he is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying here. He hasn't seen this kind of faith from people you would expect to see this kind of faith. How could it be that a man who is not a member of God's covenant community would so easily see the divine power and authority and glory of Jesus while his covenant people missed it? So that's where this marveling is, is coming from. And you might struggle with this word marvel as I have struggled with it. Okay, how could Jesus marvel? Because it, it, that could imply in some cases, marveling could imply in some cases a lack of ability or lack of enough information to make sense of what's going on in front of you. So you marvel and you stand in awe. And I just, the best illustration I can think of is when I look at a skyscraper as an example. To this day, to the, for the life of me, I cannot grasp how you get a skyscraper built. I don't know. I don't, it might as well be built by leprechauns for all I know because I don't know how it happens. You explain to me how it happens. I still won't believe you. That you dig deep into the earth and you just even hundreds of feet and you pour in this foundation and then you have to raise all this steel. And I, I, Yeah, right. It's magic. Let's be honest, people. Right? So when I see skyscrapers to this day, I just look at in my I get knots in my stomach thinking, I don't even know how that happens. That's amazing. That's how I marvel at skyscrapers. And you might be thinking, is that what's happening here with Jesus? Is he marveling because he doesn't have the capacity to put these pieces together? I don't think so. What we have to remember is that Jesus is both fully God, he's both fully God and fully man, or even a better way to say that is perfect God and perfect man. He's, he took on perfect humanity, a true human nature, but it's a, a, a perfected human nature in the sense that it's not sinful in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is not de demonstrating deficiency. From a human perspective, 
Jesus could wonder at the faith of a man whose faith surpasses those who should naturally have greater faith, namely the Jews. Actually, Jesus' response to the centurion is the right response. This is perfect humanity responding in the perfectly right way. When you meet a centurion who has very little access to the covenant people's faith, having greater faith in Jesus, their Messiah, than the Jews themselves had, the right, perfect, beautiful human response is, what? Not a display of deficiency. It should make anyone who knows the history of Israel and all the spiritual privileges that Israel enjoyed marvel or be amazed or wonder why they could find a Gentile expressing greater faith than the people in Israel. God had set up everything for the Jews. Everything. They had everything they needed. Everything was in perfect order for them to see, recognize, and embrace the Messiah. God had given them detailed prophecies in the Old Testament. He gave them a sacrificial system, which was to be a picture of the coming final sacrifice and their need for atonement. He gave them other pictures embedded in their civil and religious life. If anyone should be able to recognize and embrace the Messiah, it should be the Jews. It should be Israel. So from a human perspective, Jesus' response is entirely fitting. It had nothing to do with deficiency. It had everything to do with his perfect humanity. But I want to ask another question. What's the source of this centurion's faith? What's the source of it? Because i got to be honest with you. Personally, historically for me, as I've read through the Gospels, stories like this have been a little bit of a stumbling block for me because when I read it, it seems like Jesus is praising something that's inherent in the person. And just to give you a few more examples of Jesus commending faith in others. Luke 8, 48, the woman with the hemorrhage, we'll, we'll read about her in a little bit in, in, a, in a few weeks. Jesus said, to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus focusing and commending her faith. Luke 17, 19, the Jesus, when Jesus healed the ten lepers and one comes back, he said to the one who comes back, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke 18, 42, Jesus healing a blind beggar. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Matthew 15, 28, the Canaanite woman whose daughter had been oppressed by a demon. Then Jesus answered her, answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And again, these historically, these passages have been slightly discouraging to me, although I'm, I'm sure they're meant to be, they now are as I've dug into this text and have some of these questions answered. But they've been discouraging because I often find my faith so weak and frail. And I'm thinking, Jesus probably wouldn't be coming along commending my faith. So when I read people, these passages about Jesus commending the faith of others, I conclude that I need to get with the program and get more faith going, right? And how do I do this? Well, I think that's probably the wrong approach. Let's look at, actually, let's go back and look at how the centurion responds to Jesus that leads to this commendation of his faith. First, most importantly, what stands out in the text, what's meant to stand out in the text by way of its repetition and its contrast is the fact that the centurion begins by saying, he is not worthy. There is a view that sees the, the uh, centurion changing his mind here, that he first sent the elders to say that he is worthy, and then he realizes that's not going to work, and now he's going to say he's not worthy, I think that is a really bad misreading of the passage, as we'll see in a moment. The elders of the Jews are actually reflecting how they believed God works with people, not reflecting accurately what the centurion believed. They went, he sent his friends with him, saying, verse 3, when he sent saying about his unworthiness, when he sent the, the elders of the Jews, he said, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal the servant. That's what he, would you, elders of the Jews, will you go and tell him to heal my servant? And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, there's no evidence that that in fact was the message of the centurion. What is evidence of the message that he actually sent was that he's not worthy. So I believe this is the centurion's attitude the whole time. And we are meant to see the contrast of how two different people approach God. Two different ways of thinking of how God will, 
In fact, help me, as we'll hopefully unfold here in a few moments. But he begins by saying, I am not worthy. So at the bottom of the centurion's faith was a humility that lowered himself below Christ. And it really is the case, and Jesus is is teaching this. He'll continue to teach this in the book of Luke. You'll see it in Luke chapter 14. You'll see it in Luke chapter 18 with the Pharisee and the publican. He is teaching that, frankly, it's impossible to believe in Christ when you are cultivating a desire for human praise, when you're cultivating pride, when you're not willing to yield and bow down in humility before the Lord. And he's, Jesus is explicit about this very point in John 5, He says this, in a rhetorical question, which you know the answer of, or the answer to, rather, how can you believe when you receive glory that comes from men and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's speaking in that text to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders were arguing, debating on, with Jesus, not recognizing who he was. And he says, I'll tell you why you don't recognize who I am. It's not because you don't have the Scripture. It's not because you don't study the Scripture endlessly. It's because you have pride, which makes it impossible for you to recognize who I really am. So, in this case, the first heart attitude, the first step in the case of the centurion was this humility that lowers himself below Christ. The centurion had a social capital, didn't he? He was a Roman officer stationed in a thriving Jewish city. I'm sure he got recognition and II captains all the time. And people in the, the marketplace respecting him. He had, he had social capital. He had relational capital. He was friends with the, the Jews. He had shown them great kindness. He was respected and admired throughout Capernaum, even despite the fact that he was a Roman soldier occupying a Jewish city. He was a leader of men. He could have approached Jesus and, like the elders, grounded his request in his worthiness, in his social clout, in his relational clout, and said, help me, Jesus, because I can make it worth your while. Couldn't he? He had the ability to do that in some significant sense, at least there in Capernaum. But instead, this is, this is seeing this in its context is, is remarkable because instead he is willing to set aside the desire to exalt himself before the Savior and rather humbles himself before the Savior and says, I am not worthy. And just think about how that would have sounded to the elders, Right? They're going, thinking, we're going to go do this guy a favor. We're going to go get Jesus to help him. We like this guy. And what do you do when you want someone with uh, authority and, and, and power to help your friend? Well, you're going to go, I think we would have done this too. Let's not get too down on these elders of the Jews. You go and appeal to that person's worthiness. This is why he's so worthy for you to, to help. He's, he's done this. He's helped our nation. He loves our nation. He's built a synagogue. He's just, he's a good guy. Right? And so he's worthy of your help. But the centurion is going to directly contradict what they said. right? So he's even casting aside the need for their approval. right? You could imagine the elders saying, Hey, friend, we're just trying to help you out here. All right? We're, we're going to get you in the door. What's all this about contradicting our, our statements? Like, so, Show some appreciation, bro. I mean, come on. Let, let's... We're trying to get you in the door with Jesus. The least you could do is not contradict exactly what we said by the next message in the set of envoys that you send out to Jesus. So this, this centurion is willing to set aside the desire for praise and approval from everybody, whether it's the, the surrounding culture, society, that's going to be now seeing that he is bowing himself under this nomad from Nazareth, this nomadic rabbi from Nazareth. What? He's going to cast aside his need for approval from the elders whose message that he just contradicted. This is a humility that is going to now lead to his ability to recognize Jesus for who he is. Because he humbled himself, he's able, able spiritually now to see the authority and power of Jesus. But say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion sees in Jesus not mere magical power, but the authority that has sway over the entire creation. 
And this is not, this is what's key about this passage. This is not about self-produced faith. Jesus is not commending a self-produced faith as though this is a great work that the centurion has completed. And we know that because later in chapter 22 of Luke, Jesus is going to reveal to Peter that he's going to pray that Peter's faith not fail. And then later in Luke 24, we're going to see that Jesus opens the eyes of his disciples to recognize what's actually happening in the Old Testament scriptures and to be able to believe all that they teach, which they are previously unable to do before Jesus opened their eyes. So faith is in the hand of Jesus. It's not something that we self-generate. Faith sees. Faith beholds. Faith beholds the person of Jesus Christ in his fullness. That's why the title of today's message, if you have an outline or if you have it on your app, is great, a great Savior creates great faith. The centurion wasn't someone who was a naturally trusting person. He wasn't someone who's just naturally more religious than others. His faith wasn't remarkable because he produced it. He simply saw Jesus for who Jesus is. That's it. And in that sense, it's not that remarkable. But laid against a group of people who should have seen Jesus for who he really was and had every reason to do so but didn't, in that sense, it is remarkable. But in, in the reality that faith is simply seeing who Jesus really is, it's not. It's not something that he created. The faith was ultimately created by Jesus' person, himself, the self-authenticating God-man. And, and great faith, here's, here's the key, great faith doesn't magnify or exalt the one who is exercising the faith. I don't think the centurion is the, is, the main, is the main character in this passage. Who's the main character in this passage? It's the God-man who doesn't need to speak a word to heal the servant miles away. That's the main character in the passage. Jesus is the object of faith, Jesus is the one who creates faith in your soul when you see him for who he is. And as we see, one of the major blockages to seeing Jesus for who he is is cultivating this desire, this passion for men's praise and adulation. Weak faith, then, is not bolstered by pumping ourselves up or by trying harder. Faith is strengthened when we humble ourselves before the Lord so that we can see Jesus more clearly and then filling our minds and hearts with a true vision of the biblical Christ. He is the creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of all creation. He is the compassionate Savior who does not snuff out the smoldering wick. He is the King of kings. He is the one who loves his own. He is the one who laid himself down for all of us. He is the one who gives himself for his enemies, goes to the cross, bears our shame, receives upon himself the wrath that we deserve, is buried in the ground, raised up the third day, resurrected to the heavens, who now reigns over all things and holds together creation with the word. That's the Savior. And when you see him, then your faith is strengthened. It's not about stirring up yourself and trying to produce some more faith so that you can be commended by Christ. It's about seeing Christ for who he truly is. But there is an implicit warning here, I think, in the, in the passage. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith because it stood in contrast to those who should have seen it. They, the Jews should have seen Jesus, but they didn't. Some of them did. Most of them didn't. Why? Why didn't they see it? Again, the answer is embedded in the story itself. It's embedded in the way the elders appeal to Jesus. Why was it that the Jews were not seeing Jesus for who he is? The answer is giving, given to us here. When the centurion, verse 3, heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy. Now, that's not the teaching of the Old Covenant. 
The old covenant, understood rightly, would have pressed upon your soul to say what? I am utterly sinful before this holy law. I need a blood sacrifice, not just every day, not every year. I need a blood sacrifice continually flowing every moment of the day. That's what the old covenant should have done. But it didn't have that effect, by and large, in Israel. Did for some, didn't for all, didn't as, on the whole as a nation. The Old Covenant was always intended to demonstrate the Jews' unworthiness and pave the way for a Savior who bends down to pick up the one who is trampled upon by the law. But their self-righteousness prevailed to the point where now, when they're going to appeal to Jesus to help their centurion friend, they're going to appeal based on his worthiness. It's just how they, they thought. God helps Jesus will help those who are worthy to be helped. You should help. This is how, what they're saying. You should help him and bless the centurion Jesus precisely because he deserves it. And that's the very essence of legalism. God, help me and bless me because I am worthy of your help. I, do, I did this good work. I went to church this many times. I give this much. If that's your attitude, then, as we've already seen in John 5, you will be hindered from believing in Jesus. This is how the Scripture instructs us to ask God for help. You want to hear how Scripture, this is how you should appeal to God. Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, because I just gave $1,000 to the local church. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You want to be forgiven for your sin? Go to God and appeal on the basis of the greatness of your sin. Help me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Help me, Lord, precisely because I am unworthy. That's why you should help me. Because you're a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich in loving kindness. That's why you should help me. David says this, Have mercy on me, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's sin was as red and as bad as it could possibly be. Adultery and murder. There is nothing he could have appealed to except for the greatness of his sin. When self is denied, faith in Jesus is Possible. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, we are able to see his power and his glory and his beauty, which is what the centurion saw. The call, the implicit call of this passage is to see what the centurion saw in Jesus Christ. Christ has authority over all creation, and he is able to save you to the uttermost. If you are not in Christ today, the call of this passage in the whole New Testament is to yield to Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. It's a humble yielding. Stop commending yourself to God on the basis of your own worthiness. Stop saying that you are not as bad and that you've done a lot of good in this world and God should be impressed with you. That will hinder faith for all eternity. Stop saying that you are not as bad as you... That's the scripture claims that you are. Stop relying on your church attendance or social work or religious activity to commend yourself to God. And now I'm, I'm speaking specifically though, or those who are outside of Christ at this moment, who are leaning on those things to impress the living God. Your sin has so stained your soul and violated God's holiness that there's no hope for you. And that's where you need to find yourself. To then cry out to God, not on the basis of your worthiness, but to cry out on the basis of his mercy and the greatness of your sin. Attempting to commend yourself to God with your own works is like trying to fill Lake Tahoe with a thimble, filling it up once every three weeks. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. But when you see that, and you know, our culture by and large would, would hear a message like this and be like, oh, that's, that's your, your poor people, they're going to be, their self-esteem, it's going to be lowered into the dirt and they're not going to feel good about themselves and and there's no meanness here at all 
What I want for every person in here is joy. And joy comes by laying ourselves before the Lord in humility in order to see His goodness and His power in the cross. This is all about joy. You think, you think that centurion had joy when he beheld Christ and got his answer and his servant was healed? It's joy. It starts with unworthiness. It ends in joy, right? So this is not mean at all. It's actually mean to tell people things that will actually hinder them from believing in Jesus. That's what's mean. To cultivate a pride in self, that's mean. That's unkind. When we go to Christ as unworthy, we will begin to see the value of what Christ has done on our behalf. He has pleased God in your place. You're united to Christ. You're united to Christ. God is pleased with you. He is pleased with you because he is pleased with the Son. God, Jesus has pleased God in your place. He has fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements in your place. All of God's requirements for humanity are fulfilled in Jesus. You believe in him. You have fulfilled all of those requirements. That's how God sees you. He has risen to life in your place. He has died for your transgressions in your place. He has done all of this precisely because you and I are unworthy. His love is magnified. His grace is magnified. So then we turn to him by faith alone. So I would call anyone here who has never heard that or never yielded to that to come to Jesus Christ today, even at this very moment, that you would turn away from your sin, repenting of that sin, turning away from it and turning to Jesus, giving yourself to him. And for those of us who are in Christ, let this passage be a reminder that faith cannot grow and flourish in, a, in soil that is infested with pride. Let this passage about the sweetness and the power of Jesus humble us once again so that we can see his beauty and his power clearly once again. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this true story of the centurion and his faith, which is really a story of Jesus and his power. The centurion was a recipient of that. The servant was a recipient of that. God, would you help us to have a healthy view of our sin? The centurion didn't remain in his unworthiness. He knew it, but then he turned quickly to faith in Jesus' power. I'm unworthy, only say the word and my servant shall be healed. What a beautiful balance of recognizing our sin and believing in the power of Jesus. Would you help us, by your spirit, cultivate that balance in our own hearts and minds? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.